did you uh, did you have a good year? A good New Year's. My um, a few people have been asking me this morning, Alan, how was your New Year? My New Year was uh, interesting and or other. I saw the the New Year's in, and I I went back to my um, my apartment, and I was pretty tired, so I wanted to go to sleep. My apartment is not prime real estate in Luxembourg <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. It's right next to uh, the Gare uh, um, railway station and it's got a great view of the railway tracks if you look out the window a few meters away and it's quite a busy line so the trains are going past pretty regularly. Even worse about my apartment is that it's directly next to a nightclub. And I mean directly. So here's the wall. Here's the nightclub. Here's my apartment and where I try to sleep. And uh, it's normally not too bad, but uh, on New Year's Eve they had one of these uh, uh, Nuit Blanche uh, nights where they, they could go until three, 3 o'clock in the morning. So I was lying in bed trying to sleep, and I thought, okay, 3 o'clock, they've got to stop. 3 o'clock turned into uh, 3.30. Oh, man. And, and the problem when you live next to a nightclub is that your wall uh, kind of vibrates and the music is loud. So you just hear this, duh, 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 duh. So I'm lying there in bed, lying there for a long time, and then I looked at my watch and I thought, good night, it's quarter to five. Quarter to five, New Year's morning, I thought, well, I'll go and have a quiet word with the, um, the owner. So I went into the nightclub. And in my best French, my best French is awful, <laughs> I, I said to the proprietor, who is a small uh, Portuguese guy, uh, look, uh, Happy New Year and everything, um, I'm your neighbor, and uh, the music's very loud, I, I notice on the, on the wall that you have your thing which says you can play music until 3 o'clock, it's now 5 o'clock, um, you know, do you think you could uh, turn the music down? At this time, the, the, the small Portuguese guy, who I think had enjoyed his new year, got very angry and very accept, uh, upset, and he got actually quite aggressive. He said to me, call the police. I don't care. Call the police. I thought, that's quite strange. And then he threatened to sue me. <laughs> It's not a good idea to threaten to sue a lawyer who's tired <laughs> and actually has a good case. But I was kind of uh, taken aback and I, I kind of backed off because this guy was getting in my face and he was small. <laughs> I was kind of backing off. And then he started uh, having a, a word with some of the other party goers, kind of boom, pointing at me. I thought that that would be a good time to uh, exit the nightclub. <laughs> and so I got out and they, they slammed the door behind me. And I thought, well, I'll go back to bed and I'll try, I'll try and go to sleep. So I went back to my bed and I lay there. And lo and behold, the music actually got louder. <laughs> that actually turned the music up. And, and, and it carried on until 6 o'clock. Six o'clock in the morning. So that was my New Year's. 
Um, as, as you might have uh, guessed from the, the reading, we're going to be uh, talking about Colossians chapter 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please, uh, please turn to Colossians 1. Uh, Colossians is a great letter. Uh, Colossians was probably written by Paul. There, there's a good scholar uh, called James Dunn. No relation to me, but he does have a good name. And, and he argues that Colossians is not written by Paul for two reasons. The first is that the Christology is different. So the way that this author uh, talks about Christ is different to the way that Paul talks about Christ in the other Pauline epistles. And the second reason that he argues is that the eschatology is different. So eschatology is talk about the end times, talk about what happens when we die. In this letter, the eschatology is realized. So the the talk about the end times is talk about something that's already happened with Christ. Whereas in the other Pauline epistles, the eschatology is something that's going to happen. Okay, so it's going to happen when, when Christ comes back. And he also gives some other reasons, like grammatical reasons and stylistic reasons. So the author of Colossians uses different kind of words and sentence structure than Paul would usually use. Uh, I don't find his arguments very persuasive. Um, not least because of Colossians 1 verse 1, which says, this letter is from Paul. <laughs> I think there's a little, uh, a little clue in there. So uh, I would say the, uh, the author is in fact Paul. When was it written? Uh, I would say it was written in about AD 60. Um, in chapter 4, it talks about the author, who was quite probably Paul. This is where Dunn's argument is difficult to sustain because he has to provide an alternative to Paul, who was also in jail. And I think he struggles to do that. So it was probably written about AD 60 when Paul was in jail. And who was it written to? So it was written to the, a, a young church at Colossae. Now Colossae was a, a small town in Asia Minor, which is uh, current-day Turkey. And it was in the, the Lycus Valley. And the Lycus Valley uh, went up to Laodicea, and it was an important business hub, especially in the Greek and also in the Roman times. Colossae was on the river Meander, and it was quite close to Ephesus. Now, when Paul uh, did his missionary journeys, he didn't go through Colossae. So that's one of the amazing things to bear in mind, is that Paul didn't know these people. But what probably happened is that Paul definitely went to Ephesus, which um, is where probably Epaphras, who, it was said, founded the, the church in Colossae, heard the gospel and was converted. And then Epaphras went 120 kilometers east and founded the church in Colossae. 
And Colossae had a big Jewish minority. So why was the, the letter written? Um, people often talk about the, uh, the Colossian heresy um, or, or the false teaching that was going on at Colossae. And that there are two main reasons for this. The, the first is Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was a, um, a philosophy. It was a, a way of thinking that put a lot of emphasis on humans and, and human ability. Last week, uh, if you were here and, and can remember, Paul talked about Hebrews chapter 2. And... Hebrews chapter 2 puts a lot of emphasis on God's human nature. And by contrast, we'll see today that Colossians 1 is a lot about God's divine nature. So the the mystery religions and Gnosticism and pre-Gnosticism, they probably put a, a lot of emphasis on the humanity of Jesus and trying to fit Jesus into their systems and ways of thinking. So my feeling is that they were probably just competing with Christianity. Like uh, other things today. Uh, One example uh, is astrology. I was reading the uh, the Luxembourgish Review and they they did their uh, New Year's editorial about going forward in 2011 and what's going to happen and the person who did this uh, article did it on uh, astrology and did it on the, uh, the star signs and this person couldn't believe that only one in five people believed in astrology and believed in all these uh, star signs and all that other good stuff only one in five person but it was okay because three in five people actually read these, uh, whatever they are, I don't really know, star signs. Three in five people. I was amazed that so many people would, would read them. And Paul talks about um, this kind of Gnosticism and, and mystery cults in Colossians 2 verses 8. He says, don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense. I like that. That's my view on astrology. High-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from evil powers of this world. And not from Christ. It's all very well to, to worship the stars. But the, the problem with these um, human-type ways of thinking and philosophies is they don't answer fundamental questions. They don't answer the question of, well, who made the stars in the first place? So the, the great irony is that they, they end up worshipping the creation instead of worshipping the creator or even trying to engage and how the creation got there in the first place. And that's why Paul, in, in this first chapter, 
He talks a lot about spiritual wisdom, about spiritual understanding, and about spiritual knowledge. Because that's what sets Christianity apart from any other man-made stuff. So that, that's the first idea of why there was this Colossian heresy. The second one is the conflict uh, or the, the tension between Judaism and Christianity. Christianity came from Judaism. And in the early years, there must have been a lot of tension between the early Christians and the Jews. And they, they certainly would have known each other's beliefs and practices, and they would have probably even known uh, each other on a, on a first-name basis, and the two communities would have been fairly close. So it's easy to see in this scenario how the synagogue would be the greatest challenge to, to the early Christian church. And uh, the, the Jews are proud of their uh, religion, and they, they spend a lot of time in apologetics. They spend a lot of time in, in defending their faith. So it, in this light, it's easy to see Colossians as a, a kind of an apologetic letter. So Paul is defending the, the early Christian faith. So Colossian heresy, I, I don't find it very helpful, um, to be honest, for, for two reasons mainly. Firstly, the, the term Christianity hadn't even been coined at this time, AD 60. Our first uh, record of the term Christianity is 50 years later uh, with Ignatius. So there was no orthodoxy to be heretical or false from. And secondly, um, usually when you talk about uh, a heresy or a false teaching, there's an idea of crisis. Some rabble-rousers are, are trying to go against the authority of Paul, and Paul has to get in there and crack some heads open. In, uh, in a book like Galatians, I, I think you can see that. And it's interesting to compare the, the ending of Galatians with the ending of Colossians. Uh, in Galatians, um, Paul, Paul usually dictates his letters. So he has someone writing them down, and he just sits back and he throws out words, and the scribe writes things down. But in Galatians 6, he tells the scribe to stop writing. He picks up the pen, and he says in verse 11, I'm writing these things to you in big words, in bold print. And he was doing that because he was responding to a crisis. He really wanted to make his point. But it, it, if you compare that with the end of Colossians, in Colossians, Paul says, oh, hello to this guy, hello to the other guy, hi to Epaphras, Oh, uh, Dr. Luke sends his greetings. Um, oh, here in my own handwriting, Paul. So the, the mood in Colossians is a lot more relaxed.
So in the beginning of Colossians, we have uh, quite an extended uh, introduction. Paul talks about um, how he, he hasn't met the people, but he prays for them, and, and the good news of the Colossians have filtered uh, back to Paul. And then we, we get to the verse that we want to look at today, verse 11. We also pray that you will be strengthened with his glorious power. Now, the, the theme of power, which we really want to look at this morning, is a typical theme that Paul uses. In Romans chapter 1, he, he's trying to convince people about God. And in Romans 1 verses 20, he points them to creation. And he says, look, you've got no excuse for not believing because look at you and me and look outside at the wonderful creation. And he, to he talks about, in Romans, an eternal power. And he's just trying to show how, how awesome and how powerful God is. The, the Greek phrase that is used in Colossians 1 verse 11 is... Uh, well, it means literally empowered with all power. So it, it's the, the use of dunamoi uh, from we get uh, dynamic and dynamite. Dynamite's pretty pretty powerful stuff. Young's has a good translation of it. It says he says, "In all might, being made mighty." And so we have here this emphasis on power, this emphasis on might. And this is very typical of Hebrew literature and also the, the doubling up, so the repetition of something. So you say something and then you say it again. Well, what, uh, what exactly is this power? Paul gives an example in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.7. But this precious treasure, the light and power that now shines within us, is held in perishable containers, that is, in our weak bodies. So everyone can see that our glorious power is from God, and it's not our own. And that, that's the key in verse 7, is that the power is from God, and it's not our own power. Paul had a wealth of experience in um, facing seemingly insurmountable problems and still being able to, to endure and to, to wait it out patiently and then to overcome. And he did this with the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in Ephesians 3.16, he, he talks about times when he was able to overcome, thanks once again, not to his own power, but the power of God and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we get to this point in verse 11, we realize that our reliance on, on God 
God's power is pretty clear. I mean, it's been repeated twice and in pretty emphatic terms. But then Paul really, really rams the, the point home again. And he says, strengthened with his glorious power. Um, a, a more literal translation is according to the might of his glory. Or his glorious might. I don't know what you have in, in your translation. This time Paul uses a, a variation in the Greek. Before he used dunamois. And now he uses kratos, which is a good uh, variation because kratos in Greek mythology was the god of war, the god of power. And the talk of divine glory is typical of what you would find in the Hebrew Bible. It's doxa in the Greek and it's hardly ever mentioned in Greek. It's mentioned often, strangely enough, in the Hebrew Bible. The, the word used is kabod, and it's used often when there is a theophany. So, a theophany is when God will appear before someone on earth. So, when he'll come down to earth. And it's used in, for example, in Exodus 33, when he appears to Moses. And we get some kind of a, realiza- a realization and an affirmation of how powerful God is in a theophany. Because in Exodus 33 and in all the other theophanies, no one can see God. No one. Not even Moses. That's how powerful a figure God is. The idea here is that um, doxa, God's glory, is a manifestation of the power of God. You can make an analogy with the sun and the rays of the sunshine. Um, so you have the sun, the, balling, the, the big ball of fire, and the rays of sunshine, a manifestation of the sun's power. And then we, we move t- towards the end of the verse. So we get this glorious power so that you will have all the patience and endurance you need. Um, you, you might have different wordings in, in your translations, but that's uh, the, what this power is, patience and endurance. Well, patience was um, a, a popular thing in the Greek world. It was a treasured quality to have especially with the Stoics. And Paul talks a lot about patience in, in the rest of the Bible. Endurance, not a popular word, not my favorite word, the word endurance. Synonyms for endurance include suffering. Oh, yeah, suffering. Bear. The King James Version has long-suffering. I like that. It's not enough just to have suffering, but it's got to be long-suffering. And the, the key point to take away here is 
somewhat contrarian. In other words, it doesn't make sense. At least for me, it doesn't make sense. I mean, what do you think of when you hear the word power? For me, uh, I think of military might. I think of the, the Gearski 9. I think of Vin Diesel. I mean, I think of the mighty All Blacks rugby machine. I think of various things. I think of a lot of things. Powerful type things. Two things I do not think of are suffering and patience. Just me. And I think Matthew Henry puts the point very well. He says, the special use of this strength was for sufferings. Not what you'd expect. And the truth is that it, it takes a tremendous amount of power to, to endure patiently, to suffer patiently, to be long-suffering. And, and it's not the power that, that we would naturally think of But when we, uh, when we understand what this power is that, that God has given us, we're, we're able to understand, uh, for example, a verse like Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's... It, is an absolute power. It's not a limited power. It's absolute. It's saying you can do anything. And, and how can we do these things? If, if we look on into verses 12 through 14. God's gift is so powerful because it's His only Son, Jesus Christ. And in 12 to 14, there are five benefits that God gives to all believers through Christ. The first is that we are able to share in His inheritance. The second is that we are rescued from the devil's kingdom. And he makes us his children. The third is that uh, we are brought into his eternal kingdom. We, we're given the gift of eternal life. The fourth is that he buys, he purchases our freedom from sin and judgment through his blood, through dying on the cross. And the fifth, in verse 14, he forgives our sins. And Christ did all of this on the cross. When, when Christ came to earth, the, the Jews were expecting some great powerful figure who was going to come and just slay the Romans 
and release them from captivity. The person that came was a meek, patient, humble guy who died and suffered on a cross. But in that way, he was very powerful and it's not the powerful that they were expecting, not the kind of power that they were expecting, but it's the most powerful thing that we can get in this life or the next. I'm not sure how your 2010 was. I hope you had a better new year than I did. And now that we, we move into 2011, my, my 2010 was um, frankly quite awful. For me, the best thing about 2010 was that it finished. And I came to the end of 2010, and uh, I was having that time of reflection that you have about 2010, and looking forward to the new year, and, and praying to God and saying, look, could I please have a better year in 2011? And lo and behold, my 2011 starts off just where 2010 finished off. And church, I would have loved to preach a motivational, be-all-you-can-be 2011-type sermon. But this is the sermon that God has laid on my heart for this morning. Sometimes we have to suffer. Sometimes we have to endure patiently. Christ did it on the cross. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we would also have to endure patiently in this life. Because the, the good news that God gave to the Colossians was a powerful gift that enables us to endure patiently. And, and with this gift, we, we can do anything. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the book of Colossians and the, the young church that was at Colossae. We thank you for their um, interactions and their uh, struggles with Gnosticism and, and various competing factors in, in the early years. We thank you for the gift that you sent them in the form of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for, for the letter that Paul wrote to them and all the love and feeling that he conveys in, in, in the letter. We pray that, that we would be able to, to pray for others as Paul does in Colossians 1. We, we thank you for the, the gift of, of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that in 2011 we would live lives that are more in tune with you and that we would live lives in the Spirit so that we can fully benefit from your power. We pray these things in your wonderful name.
Amen.